So good to see you here today. Well, earlier this week, the, uh, you may have heard that the Center for Disease Control, our, our, our good pals from the CDC, they, uh, they updated the mask-wearing guidance uh, guidelines. And they said that, in their opinion, uh, that those who are vaccinated no longer need to wear masks pretty much for, for most situations, except for traveling and things like that. Now, the announcement caught many people by surprise, and uh, I like to get on uh, online and, and see the different um, news uh, people, you know, news stations posting these articles. And I like to get in and read all the comments and see just the wide range of emotions people have uh, with this announcement. And basically, I saw three different reactions, essentially, uh, about the news. Uh, some people would comment and they would say that they haven't been wearing masks the whole time anyway, so it won't really change their life. Uh, others who have been trying to follow the guidelines are willingly now thankful, they're happy, they're taking the masks off and moving on. <laughs> and then there are those who, despite the updated guidelines, they, they don't really trust the guidelines and they're, they're not quite willing to, to part with the mask and some people are still, still fearful about that. And so that's kind of really the three groups I've seen people fall into and as we ease back into normalcy in our country, this is kind of how this will unfold, I believe. It will be a slow scaling back to normal. Some will kind of rush back quicker than others. Others will kind of take their time being adjusted. I know for me, just going places, and, and I was in the Chick-fil-A drive through the other day, and there, and there were workers that come out to your car had taken their masks off, and I just couldn't quit staring at their faces. I, I haven't seen people's faces in so long. I just was like, hey, <laughs> just staring at, that's what, who are you, right? I'm so used to seeing two eyes and a mask everywhere I go. So it's going to take people time to adjust and get back into comfort level and all that. And as we continue in the book of Nehemiah, uh, we've been looking at this long process of rebuilding the walls around Jerusalem. And just like getting back to normal in our country won't happen overnight, this project for Nehemiah didn't happen overnight. It took a long time and specifically today, we're going to see how even though his main goal was to be rebuilding a wall, he had other issues he had to deal with as well and other people he had to, to help. And today we're looking at some interpersonal conflict and how those things take time. And that's what we're looking at today. We're in Nehemiah chapter 5. And it's a long passage. We're just going to read through the first 13 verses in introduction here. It says in verse 1, now there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. For there were those who said, with our sons and our daughters we are many, so let us grain that we may eat and keep alive. There were also those who said, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses to get grain because of the famine. And there were those who said, we have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers, our children as their children. Yet we are forcing our sons and daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but it is not in our power to help it. For other men have our fields and our vineyards. Verse 6. I was very angry when I heard their outcry in these words. So I took counsel with myself. And I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. I said to them, you are exacting interest each from his brother. And I held a great assembly against them and said to them, 
We, as far as we are able, have brought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations, but you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. They were silent and could not find a word to say. So I said, the thing that you are doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies? Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Let us abandon this exacting of interest. Verse 11. Return to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, their houses, and the percentage of money, grain, wine, and oil that you have been exacting from them. Then they said, we will restore these and require nothing from them. We will do as you say. And I called the priests and made them swear to do as they had promised. I also shook out the fold of my garment and said, so may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep this promise. So may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, amen, and praise the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. Heavenly Father, as we continue to worship you today, uh, we thank you that, that you are a God who is able to do so much in our lives. And Lord, as we look at this passage of scripture today, we look at this passage where Nehemiah had to show great leadership in correcting a wrong and correcting an injustice that was happening among the people of God. That moving forward as your people, your, your believers, Lord, your Christians, your disciple makers, Father, if we see situations of injustice among your very people, that we also in our church, Lord, would be, and in your kingdom would be bold enough to follow Nehemiah's leadership and do what you've called us to do. Father, I pray that you show us what that is today. Lord, I pray that you do speak through me. Uh, give me the words to speak and, and fill me with your spirit today, Father. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. With the security threat contained that was along the wall, that was what we talked about two weeks ago, and along with the continued, will, uh, uh, continued work on building the wall, a new difficulty had cropped up for Nehemiah to have to deal with, and it was this internal dissension and strife and injustice among the people of God. And the main dissension was brought about a system of injustice that was allowed to evolve over time among God's people. So today I want to give you three things that we have to do if we're going to rebuild our church, if we're going to rebuild the people of God. And it's not just the church that has to be rebuilt as we get back into normalcy, as we get back into following Christ, as we take the masks off, so to speak, right? And literally and figuratively, individual people are going to have to be rebuilt. Their faith is going to have to be rebuilt. Their, their propensity to worship are going to have to be rebuilt. What do we have to do to do these things? Number one, we must notice God's people. That's first. If we're going to rebuild the people of God, we must notice God's people. Not everyone has come back to church yet. Do you, have you noticed who hasn't? It's hard to notice sometimes because they're not here. You know, in fact, many of you, we have two services. And uh, if, if you miss, if you're here every, every week and you miss a week, you know, I might not notice. But if you miss two weeks, three weeks, I probably do. Sometimes that happens. And then you kind of go on. And, but, but no, we've been gone for 14 months. And some people haven't come back. So we have to notice the people of God if we're going to rebuild God's church. Now, in this section, Nehemiah has three separate complaints that come to him. In the first one, look at verse 1. 
It says, There arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against the Jewish brothers. So what was happening here is the people were bringing to light this desperate situation that was brought about by three things, by famine, uh, famine in the land, people were starving, by incredibly high taxes, and by the greed of the wealthy Jewish brothers. Verse 2, for there were those who said, with our sons and our daughters we are many, so let us grain that we make eat and keep alive. The first complaint was that some of the wives whose husbands were out building the wall and doing the work, they had no way, no way of providing for their families. These workers had quit their jobs to go build the wall. It's very much like they quit their job to do mission work, essentially is what was going on. They weren't getting paid. Nehemiah wasn't paying people to build the wall. So they had to quit their job to build the wall because if there wasn't a wall, there would be no Jerusalem because they would be attacked. So it had to be that before anything else. They weren't getting paid. They were quitting their jobs. And there were other families who weren't helping on the wall who could help these families who had made these sacrifices. But apparently they were not helping. So these wives and children were calling out for help while their husbands were on the job site doing the work of the Lord. So you got people doing God's work and the people who are staying home not supporting them. This is why... Uh, this is why, as the Southern Baptist Churches, we, we pay our pastors. This is why we fund our missionaries through the offerings we give. You know, not one single Southern Baptist missionary has to go and raise money. Did you know that? They don't have to. Because we, we give a portion of, of all, all of our churches together to the international and North American missions. Now, it's not an exorbitant fund, but they don't have to worry about funding money because those staying home are supporting those doing the work of the Lord. Well, in this case, those doing the work of the Lord on the wall weren't being supported. And Nehemiah called an issue with it. Look at verse 3. There were also those who said, we're mortgaging our fields and our vineyards and our houses to get grain because of the famine. Not only were the wives struggling, other landowners were struggling. They were forced to mortgage their property just so they could buy food. Now, why was food scarce? Well, food was scarce because there was a famine in the land. And that there, were, there were also some who were, who were no doubt selling the grain prices that, that could sell the grain. They had gouged the prices so high they could charge whatever they wanted to. You know, I was thinking about building a nice little wooden doghouse in my backyard. And then I saw what the price of lumber was. <laughs> All right. Now, I really wasn't going to build one. But if I wanted to build one, uh, it would be extremely expensive. And, of course, with gas situation in the last few weeks, we're a little worried about price gouging happened. Thankfully, it didn't happen too bad. You know? But when you have a monopoly on the things that people need, you can raise that price. And this is what people were doing. Just to buy grain, the prices were exorbitant. Now, some scholars believe that the building of the wall most likely contributed to the famine as it depleted the workforce. So they're out doing God's work, but then the workforce is depleted and people are starving because they're doing God's work. So sometimes when, we, when, when God gives you a clear message to do something like Nehemiah did, it's clearly from God. It doesn't mean that it's not going to have a negative effect on some people. This is what's happening. Now they could have gotten through it and they're going to get through it as we want to see, but Nehemiah had to manage this. But then there's another group who was struggling as well, verse 4. And there were those who said, we have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. Now, most farmers, they would receive silver in payment after they took their, 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 uh, their crop and they, and they harvested it and they sold it. They would receive silver. 
but they were having to borrow silver to then pay taxes to the Persian government. And now they weren't sure that they would receive silver for payment because people didn't have silver because they didn't have any food, they didn't have any money. So you can see this, this, this uh, complex economic supply and chain demand just kind of breaking down. They couldn't do this because they didn't have that, and they couldn't do that because they didn't have this. And it was just this bad economic circle, domino effect type thing. So they had to do the unthinkable, the unthinkable. They had to enslave their children. They had to sell their children to other people to do work. Well, I'll give you my son over here, and, and, uh, and I'll just give you to him, and he can do the work, and that way I won't have to have any more debt or tax. Or, and, and I'll make money to pay off loans, but you know, my son will go to work for you or help it for other men, have our fields and our vineyards. When you had to put the mortgage up, other people owned your property. That's what was going on. I saw the other day that the interest rates for a new house is about 3% or something like that or something crazy, crazy low. Well, the interest rates back in this time would be anywhere between 20 and 50%. Can you imagine that? 20 and 50%. So you're starving. You have to, to basically pawn off your property, and they're charging you 40, 50% interest for it. So it just, it just exacerbated the famine. There was no middle class. There was just all the, the, the nobles and the officials, and everyone else was struggling. Now, the Persians, they gave the exiled people and they gave the conquered people freedom of religion. That was the unique thing. This is why uh, Nehemiah could even go back to Jerusalem and do this great work. Because they gave them, they said, you can worship whoever you want, however you want, but they taxed the devil out of them. They're, they taxed them just exorbitantly. So yes, they had freedom to, to worship, but that's about all they had the freedom to do. And that's how they kept the peace in the Persian Empire. The foreigners were completely economically crushed, even though they could worship and, and have faith. Now, as Christians, it's our duty to help brothers and sisters in Christ when they are struggling financially. Look, look at this. Scripture talks about this. Look at Proverbs 19.17. Whoever is generous to the poor uh, lends to the Lord, and he will repay him for his deed. The Bible says if there is someone who is truly poor, truly financially uh, a destitute, if you give to him, you're not just giving to that person, you're giving to God. Right? Look at Romans 12, 13. Paul says, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. If there is a person, a Christian, a member of our church who is true, desperate need, financial need, it's the church's obligation to help them. Okay? Look at James 2. 15 through 17. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? In other words, you can say, I'll pray for you and all that, but if you're not really helping, what good is it? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. There's a connection here between helping others in the kingdom of God and being a believer. He makes a direct, a direct a connection there. All right. So when, when you give financially to First Baptist, a portion of what you go give, not only does it go support our missionaries, as I talked about earlier, uh, a portion also goes to our benevolence ministry. We've had a benevolence ministry for many years at the church. And through that, we serve some of the needs of our community through this giving. But that's not the primary calling of that ministry. The primary calling is when we actually get to help our own people. We get to help our own church members. And from time to time, we get to do that, and we love to be able to do that. 
but we can't help people if we don't know what's happening or we don't know their situation. So if we're going to build back God's people, we, we must notice them. We must know what they're going through. We must have a working knowledge of their lives. And that's number one. We must notice God's people. Number two. Secondly, we must defend God's people. We must defend God's people. Look at verse 6. Nehemiah says, I was very angry when I heard their outcry in these words. Now, it's not a sin to be angry. In fact, the Bible says, in your anger, do not sin. And there are times where we may see people being treated unfairly. We see injustice or oppression of some sort, especially occurring to our brothers and sisters in Christ. And then by our brothers and sisters in Christ, it would make us angry. Uh, for Nehemiah, I imagine this was similar to when you see maybe brothers and sisters being equally mean to each other, have four children. Sometimes uh, we'll refer to them as one, two, three, and four. <laughs> you know, it's because it's Jackson and John David and Annabeth and Abigail. Sometimes you say the wrong name. You know, and it doesn't matter what combination of that child is being mean to the other. One could be mean to two, two could be mean, mean to one, three to four, three to two, three to one. It doesn't matter whatever combination is being mean to the other child. If one of my children is being ugly and mean to one of my other children, I get upset about it. And I want to defend the other one. That's, that's the fatherly parental nature. It doesn't matter which combination, you know, one might be mean to one and the other, and I'm, and I'm upset with that one. And then the, they might turn the tables and the other one might be mean. I'm going to be upset with them as well. Okay. This is what Nehemiah is seeing. All of God's children, some are being unjustly treated by the others. And he's angry about it. This is the case Nehemiah found himself in with God's children. So what did he do? Well, I don't think he sinned in his anger. Look what verse 7 says. I took counsel with myself. That means he, he gave himself a timeout. <laughs> you know, sometimes when you get angry about something that you have a right to get angry about, it's best just to get in your car and drive maybe, right? It's best just to walk around. Counting to ten works. Taking a deep breath. This is what he did. He sees it. He hears about it. He's got all these people coming to him saying, Nehemiah, let me tell you what's happening. My daughter is a slave now. For, well, who, well, who's doing that? Well, so-and-so down the street. What? My son is having to work for this guy. Why are you doing that? Because I can't afford it. What's the interest rate? 50%. The person that I know in this, in this community is doing that to you. So he's getting all these complaints from people, and he is fed up. He's angry. He probably wants to do something far worse than what he ends up doing. But what does he do? He cools off. He takes counsel with himself. And we know that Nehemiah was a man of prayer. I'm sure he prayed. And look what he says he did, verse 7. He said, I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. He says to them, you are exacting interest each from his brother. Now, we know later on, we don't know this right now, but later on in the passage, we know that he could do this because Nehemiah was the governor of this area. The king of Persia made him the governor of Judea. So he was able to do this. Gave himself some time to calm down, and he calls out their sin. And because this was a sin that affected the entire community, Nehemiah made it public. Look what he says in verse 7. And I held a great assembly against them. And I, and I said to them, we, as far as we are able, have bought back our Jewish brothers from who have sold to the nations. But we got others who are selling Jewish people to Jewish people. 
That's a problem, he said. They may be sold to us. And look at their response in verse 8. They were silent and could not find a word to say. You know why? Because they knew it was wrong. They knew it was wrong. It's against God's Old Testament law that they were following. It was against God's law to, to charge exorbitant interest rates to their brother and sister. It was against God's law to enslave them. Doing it anyway. Now, normally if a person has sinned against another, we should deal with that issue in as small circle as possible. One-on-one, or if that doesn't work, get a mediator, two-on-one. But because of this injustice that had reached, for lack of a better word, a pandemic level in the community, Nehemiah had to deal with this publicly. So he isolates the sin, and he explains why it's not good. Verse 9, so I said, the thing that you are doing is not good, Ought ye not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations of our enemies? He was more concerned with God's glory. Can you imagine it now? Well, you know, I don't know. This is how it would work out if it happened now, if it was, if it was a church or Christianity. You'd hear this. Well, I don't want to be a Christian because you got people at that church, you know, uh, cheating each other. Who wants to follow Christ if, the own, if their own believers can't get along? Who wants to follow Jesus if this Christian is following this Christian and this Christian is, 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 is cheating this Christian? Why would I need that? This is what he's saying. The nations are watching us. What are we doing? It's negatively affecting the community of faith. And when it negatively affects the community of faith, it might negatively affect someone's eternity who, need, who is lost and needs Jesus but can't see Jesus because of God's people getting in the way. Verse 10. He says, moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Let us abandon this exacting of interest. Now, no doubt Nehemiah had a great salary from being the governor. So he and his brothers and his servants, they're lending the money to people. They're helping them out because they can. Verse 11, return to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, their houses, the percentage of money, grain, wine, oil, everything. Give it all back. Now, again, this is public, right? And we know just from once, people might say things publicly that they don't do privately. It does happen from time to time. Elections have been won that way. We know that. It happens all the time. So this is public. And may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, Amen. Praise the Lord. And the people did as they had when we see God's people being taken advantage of, especially from other God's people. Now, now, you know, in context, we don't really have a lot about this going on in our church, but it might happen from time to time in the kingdom of God. We might see this thing happening among brothers and sisters in Christ. When we see a brother or sister in Christ being treated unjustly by anyone, sometimes God's people need defending, and it's God's leaders that have to do the defending. Nehemiah was a leader. He had the means. He had the responsibility. He had the, the area where he could do that. He had the influence where he could do that. So we have to defend God's people sometimes when we're going to rebuild God's people. And number three, finally, and most importantly, we must love God's people. We must love God's people. As I mentioned, Nehemiah was given an exceptional responsibility. He did not abuse his authority. He didn't profit from it. He could have profited from it. 
He had all these, these, uh, this wealth that he was given for being the governor, all of the stuff that he had. From time to time, government officials will abuse their authority. That does happen. From time to time, they will uh, profit from their position. But Nehemiah did not. He did not do it. He, did, he used the privilege God had given him to love the people of God. Look at verse 14. He says this. Moreover, from the time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year to the 32nd year of Artaxerxes the king, 12 years. For 12 years he was the governor. There were no elections. He was appointed and he was the governor for 12 years. He says, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. He was given all sorts of food, all sorts of wealth. He didn't eat any of it. We're going to see what he did in a second. At some point, as it became obvious that Nehemiah was going to be in Judea for a while, the king of Persia named him governor. Remember, he let him leave. He was, he was the, the wine taster for the king. He was his most trusted man, and he heard about what was going on in Jerusalem. He said, let me go and, and rebuild the wall. And the king let him go. And so he appointed him governor, no doubt, because he trusted that Nehemiah would do a good job. Nehemiah wasn't trying to lead a revolt. He was simply trying to take care of his, his people in the government by which they lived in. And so he says in verse 15, Nehemiah says, The former governors who were, who were before me, they laid heavy burdens on the people, and they took from them for their daily ration 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants lorded it over the people. But I did not do so because, why? Of the fear of God. I want to say something. I'm going to say it twice. I want you to hear this. Nehemiah's faith in God and his attitude to bring glory to God affected how he governed the people of God. I'll say that again. Nehemiah's faith in God and his attitude to bring glory to God affects how he governed the people of God. That's how it's going to be for all of us. As we grow in Christ's likeness. Our faith in God, our attitude to bring God glory affects how we deal with God's people, how we interact with God's people. It affects how we love God. And this is what Nehemiah is saying. Now, don't forget, the goal is to build the wall, but we're going to do all these things as well. Why? Because God's called us to. And he says, and, and by doing so, I didn't buy any land, my servants were gathered there for the work. Verse 17, moreover, there were at my table 150 men eating. Now, I read the other day that it's estimated, I don't know how someone knows this, it's estimated that the largest supper table in the world is somewhere in India and it fits 100 people, right? You can't get that at rooms to go, I don't think, but, you know. Well, his set 150. Why was it so big? Because people were starving and he had all sorts of things to help them with, and they came and ate at his table. I don't know how it worked. I don't know if some people had once a month and once a week. But look what it says in verse, 10, verse 18. This is what he was giving. Now, what was prepared at my expense for each day was one ox. One ox a day will feed a lot of people. Six choice sheep a day and birds and every 10 days, all kinds of wine in abundance. This is what he was given as the governor. This is his ration. This is what he prepared at his own expense as the governor. And he invited all the starving people to come and eat with him. 
He loved God's people. He says, yet for all this, I did not demand the food allowance of the governor because the service was too heavy on this people. They were supposed to give, they were supposed to be taxed and give more money to him and he didn't allow it. But look what he says in verse 19 when he closes this. He says this, remember for my good, oh my God, all that I've done for this people. Now, if you look at it, it looks like he's almost being a little selfish here. But here's what he's saying. He's saying that I don't want to be remembered as the man who rebuilt the wall. I don't want to be remembered as the man who was the, the chief wine taster for the king of Persia. I don't want to be known as the man who came and, 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 and strategized to help prevent the wall from being breached. I want to be known as the man who loved God's people. That's what I want to be known for. The good that I've done. Not for his glory, but for the glory of God. And if we're going to rebuild the church, if we're going to, be re, if we're going to rebuild the people of God, we have to be known as people who love the people of God. Heavenly Fathers, we close our time together today. We thank you for Nehemiah's story and his example. And yet, Lord, he was given extraordinary means and extraordinary privileges that we would never have. And he took them to heart. He didn't use them to, to better his life or to better his name or to increase his fame. He used them for your glory and the good of the people. Father, I pray that those leaders in our own church would have this mind. Myself, our staff, our leaders, our teachers, our deacons, everyone. That we're doing things for your glory for the good of God's people. And for all God's people that are here today, they also have that mindset. That as we're making disciples, as we're going and making disciples, we're doing so in a way that brings you glory and in a way that honors you and in a way that is loving for the people of God. Father, your word tells us that People will, will know we're Christians by our love. So that is our prayer today, Father. Lord, if there's one in here today that's never placed their faith in you today, that today they would, that they would, they would admit that they've sinned and broken your law, that they would understand that Jesus came to this earth and, and through his death and his work on the cross and his burial and his resurrection, that he has purchased eternal life for them. He has forgiven them of their sins, that they would realize that today. And that by receiving salvation, they would have the peace that passes all understanding. They would have an abundant life starting today. Or maybe they need to make that decision today. I pray they would. Whether they talk to me during the song, whether they talk to me after service, whether they fill out a connection card, Lord, that we are thankful that we're able to put back in these pews. Whatever it is, Father, they would let us know. They have chosen to follow you, Lord. We, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the church that you're slowly putting back together, Father. Not only here, but in the world. Let us be found faithful as we're making disciples to love the people we're trying to reach, but also to love God's people. Lord, we love you. We ask things, things in Jesus' name.